What are some strategies for maximizing Opportunity Zone investment returns? As an investor, what should you be aware of, and what pitfalls should you avoid? Find out next. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast, the weekly show where we interview Opportunity Zones professionals and experts from fund managers to tax advisors, from real estate developers to venture capitalists. If it impacts Opportunity Zones or the Opportunity Funds industry, we cover it here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Atkinson. Joining me today is Kevin Shields, founder, chairman, and CEO of Griffin Capital, an alternative investment asset management company founded in 1995. To date, they have over $17 billion in assets under management. Kevin is a REIT, Alternatives, and Opportunity Zone expert with more than 30 years of experience in real estate and investment banking. He joins us today from his office in El Segundo, California. Kevin, thank you for joining me and welcome to the show. Great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So let's, uh, to start us off, could just tell me a little bit about Griffin Capital. Who are your typical clients and are you working with individual investors or just RIAs and and broker dealers and what types of investments are you managing typically? Well, you, you covered it in the intro. Griffin Capital is an alternative asset manager. We operate in several different verticals, if you will. We have two public non-traded real estate investment trusts, one that buys office and industrial, one that buys clinical medical real estate, medical office, skilled nursing, assisted living. And hospitals, we have two 40-act interval funds, one that acquires a strategic and diversified mix of private and public real estate securities, and one that uh, originates uh, high-yield corporate debt. We have two tax-driven strategies, one that buys stabilized core multifamily that syndicates the equity into a Delaware statutory trust wrapper that qualifies as like-kind property for purposes of a 1031 exchange. And then the Qualified Opportunity Zone Fund we launched about a month ago. Our, we, uh, we serve with the uh, privilege and pleasure of our retail investors, but we access them through our clients, really, which are the, um, the financial intermediaries, so financial advisors, registered investment advisors, through all three channels, the independent broker-dealer channel, the RIA channel, and the wirehouse channel. Good. So you don't, you don't work directly with individual investors. And if I'm an individual investor, I, I can't access your, your funds directly. I would have to go through my, my intermediary. Is that correct? Yeah, we, we have uh, Griffin Capital Securities is our wholesale broker dealer. So our external wholesalers and our, their internal partners are responsible for raising the capital through the registered investment advisor community, the IBD community, and the independent broker dealer community, and the wirehouse community. So you would access our product through your financial advisor. Good, understood. So what is your personal background story, Kevin? Can you tell me a little bit about the story about how you got to where you are today? Sure. I uh, I went to uh, college and business school and law school all at Berkeley. I spent a very short period of time uh, practicing law, and I spent about a decade on Wall Street, mostly working for Solomon Brothers, which is a name you don't hear so much about anymore. Uh, in downtown uh, Manhattan, they transferred me to Los Angeles in 91. I worked for a couple of years running a structured finance group for Jeffries and Company in Los Angeles, which is largely an outgrowth of half the Beverly Hills office of Drexel, Burnham, Lambert, and another name you don't hear much about anymore. And uh, started Griffin Capital in 1995, and we started really with institutional partners doing structured sale leaseback transactions. We started into the um, individual investor syndication market, if you will, in 2004. We did 26 or 27 
uh, Reg D private placements. We got into the public non-traded real estate investment trust business in 2009, and we just continued to, to grow ever since, continuing to add product to serve the needs of our financial advisors and their clients. And a long history of doing that, it sounds like, dating back to 1995 for your current company that you founded. But yeah, I want to shift you, our- Hold on my career of 30 years. I find it hard to believe I'm that old. <laughs> That's the bio I got on you. So it must be true, right? I want to shift our conversation now to Opportunity Zones. When did you first hear about Opportunity Zones and what was your initial reaction? Well, we heard the rumblings of Opportunity Zones coming up to the end of 2000, uh, 2017. And ultimately, the Investment Investment Opportunities Act got folded into and was subsumed into the Tax Act and Jobs uh, Cuts Act that was passed in December of 2017. We really started to dig deep into this really that following month in January or February of 2018. And I got to tell you, it's, it's probably the most phenomenal piece of tax legislation I've seen in the 30 years that I've been in this business. So we're, we're very excited to, uh, to uh, wrap a fund and a fund structure around this to give individual investors the opportunity to take full advantage of the tax benefits associated with subchapter Z and section 1400 of the code. So I was, I was amazed, I guess. And I have to tell you, I was reading the legislation and literally in my dining room table sitting across from my wife I was somewhat agape my mouth was somewhat agape with respect to what the true power of this legislation is and I, I think you've had other podcasts that really explain what the legislation is about so I'm not going to go through that but that 100% fair market value basis step up after a 10 year holding period is just an incredibly powerful vehicle that's going to generate a significant amount of wealth and redirect a lot of <clears throat> capital gains dollars into uh into low-income communities. So it's exciting really on both ends of the, of the spectrum. But ultimately, as I was sitting there in February, I realized that this is something that we have to participate in personally. So uh, as we think about or thought about structuring a fund around this, uh, it really was stemmed from a personal motivation to generate some capital gains myself by, by liquidating some low basis, highly appreciated stock and investing it into our own fund. So I, uh, I did that this year generated about a seven and a half million dollar gain and we invested in our own qualified opportunity fund just because I personally wanted to take advantage of everything that this legislation has to offer. Good. So you're putting your money where your mouth is. You have a little bit of skin in the game personally. That's good to see. Literally and figuratively. Absolutely. So the Griffin Capital Opportunity Zone Fund, you mentioned that um, that launched just a few weeks ago, I, I guess. It's seeking a $275 million raise, if I'm not mistaken. What is its investment strategy and how much have you raised and deployed so far? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's funny that you should know that because we try to, we try to keep that kind of under wraps. I, I think it's interesting that people go so loud and proud with respect to what they're doing in this space. Fundamentally, this is a Reg D offering and there are securities laws implications with respect to general solicitation. So we're trying to not really advertise the fact that we have this fund available. In fact, the people that need to know are the financial advisors through whom we sell the, the product. So I can't talk a little much about the specifics of the fund just because I'm constrained. But I tell you, if I were to do a uh, opportunity fund, uh, we would focus specifically on, uh, on multifamily, ground up multifamily development, really for a few different reasons. One is it's, uh, it's eminently leasable and it's got a high propensity to rent, both from the millennial side of the equation, which is where my kids are. I've got kids that are 31, 31, 26, 24, and they live in California. So unless I want to start buying homes for them, they'll be in the apartments for um, for quite a while. And then on the other side, you're seeing it from the the opposite end of the spectrum. The baby boomer generation is in the position. My my uh, 
um, compatriots whose uh, kids are kind of off and doing their own thing are, are inclined to downsize and move into a, into a multifamily environment. <clears throat> so you're kind of seeing it at both ends. You know, multifamily is an asset class relative to office, industrial, or retail. It's got the highest total return over an extended period of time with the lowest relative standard deviations. So you combine those things and you get the highest relative risk-adjusted return with respect to that asset class. The absolute size of the transactions are large. Uh, so, you know, if we think about multifamily development, we'd be building anything anything between 50 and $150 million. So it's very scalable from that perspective. You can actually assemble a six, seven, eight hundred million dollar portfolio of assets with uh, with a small handful of properties, six, seven, eight different properties. So it's very scalable. And probably the most uh, critical reason, even though if we look at this in terms of a fund environment and a fund context, and you pr- you're providing <clears throat> diversification because you've got multiple assets in the fund, you're still only talking about six, seven, or eight different assets. So the thing we like about multifamily uh, the most is the exposure to capital expenses is, is the most pro, uh, programmatic of any of the, asset, of the asset class. So you generally know that 30 or 35% of your units are going to roll over in any given year. You know how much it costs to repaint and carpet those units and occasionally throw in a refrigerator or a new countertop. You know what your footprint is for the common area. And to the extent you want to maintain a common area in a, in a certain quality, you know how much you've got to reserve on a fairly consistent basis. So it's it's very programmatic. It's very consistent. The uh, the capital expense charges, which is important when you're talking about a small portfolio of assets, to main consistent to create consistency with respect to the distribution you make out of that partnership, as opposed to an office building or an industrial building. And we own close to five billion dollars worth of office and industrial, and I can tell you that you lose a big tenant in an office building, it creates a certain amount of disruption in the cash flow with respect to that particular building. <clears throat> if you only have six or seven or eight assets in a portfolio, uh, that could uh, impair your ability to generate consistent distribution of the partnership. So for a number of reasons, we focus on uh, multifamily and we focus on uh, assets all around the country, uh, depending on um, our development partners. So this is a development program, if you will. It's either got to be a ground up development. If, if you look at Qualified opportunity zone legislation through the lens of a real estate developer and operator. Uh, clearly, and I'm sure you have other podcasts that are focused on the whole other side of the qualified opportunity zones, which is investment in business and the private equity component. We're just focused on the on the real estate side. So we have created a series of joint venture relationships with six of the most prominent national multifamily developers in the country, uh, and we've had the opportunity over the last year to really mine through their forward development pipeline and identify assets that are suitable for development, that are suitable and create the kind of risk to create that just happen to fall into a qualified opportunity zone. Assets that they were pursuing on their own, independently of the legislation, because if you think about it in the context of development, a, you know, a development partner is going to tie up a piece of land and to put it under contract or a letter of intent, take it through the entitlement process, which depending on where you are in the country could be a matter of months or in the case of California, a matter of years, trying to get something fully entitled. So they're controlling a piece of land for an extended period of time while they're going through that entitlement process. So, uh, you know, when you think about sourcing transactions, we're only really looking at transactions that were in the forward pipeline that they were already pursuing on an economic basis, independent of the fact that subchapter Z and section 14 of the code 
you know, blessed us with his presence because <clears throat> we didn't actually have the map until uh, April. So that's really the focus. The focus is on ground-up multifamily development. The focus is on getting a portfolio of six, seven, eight different assets uh, and, uh, and getting some geographic diversification and really focusing specifically on the economic return. The tax benefits are a nice add-on, but we're really focused first and foremost on the economics of the transaction. Very good. And yeah, just so you know, the $275 million raise number that I cited is just, um, I found that from your publicly available SEC filing. So that's that's all I know about the fund myself before asking you about it. Uh, I want to ask you a little bit about deal sourcing. You, you touched on it briefly toward the end of your last answer, but how do you source your real estate deals? And maybe if you could speak to a broad segment of our listeners, which are real estate developers who would love to get their project in front of someone like you, what advice do you have for them? Well, um, when we were looking, when I was first looking at the legislation in February, clearly there was not enough proverbial meat on the bone to actually structure a fund, right? We got the first uh, release of proposed regulations in October. That got us probably 80% of the, the way there. And then we really got 95% of the way there with respect to the release that was um, delivered to us from Treasury on uh, April 17th of this year. So now we've got enough to really structure and intelligently structure a fund. So while we were waiting for those proposed regs to be released, we thought first, what asset class we want to focus on for the reasons that we that we had articulated earlier, we're focused on ground up multifamily development. The second leg is really to go through our own Rolodex, if you will, and uh, pick out <clears throat> um, high quality, high caliber, national uh, multifamily developers travel around the country and speak directly to those with whom we have pre-existing relationships and educate them in the front end about this legislation and what, what it entails and what the nature of the opportunity is. We identified six partners with whom we have partnered up in the, uh, in the first fund. As I said earlier, we started to source transactions just by going through the forward pipeline of those six multifamily developers and identifying assets that we wanted to pursue. You know, you think about the juxtaposition between ourselves and the partners. For the most part, our development partners are merchant builders. So they want to build it, stabilize it, and sell it. So, you know, we don't see the opportunity unless it makes it through their screen. And they feel comfortable that on a merchant build situation, they can generate an appropriate risk-adjusted return for themselves, recognizing that they are agnostic as to whether or not the asset is a qualified opportunity zone or not. They would just assume build across the street from a QOZ if they could generate a higher return. So that's really the, the first basket of, uh, of assets that we look at are those that have already been screened by our joint venture developer. And then we've got a different perspective, right? Our lens or our horizon is much longer because we've got to hold it for at least 10 years to get the benefit of the 100% fair market value basis step up. So we're looking at more long-term trends, long-term demographics, employment, uh, you know, employment trends, uh, demand and supply trends, uh, where we are in the path of growth with respect to an individual asset, because <clears throat> uh, as you know, uh, the uh, the qualified opportunity zones in order to qualify it has got to uh, satisfy a couple of different constraints, right? It's either got to have a, an unemployment rate or a poverty rate greater than twenty percent, or an unemployment rate or a median family income at or less than eighty percent of the prevailing metropolitan median family income. So that's really the the screen. So we're looking at it from a much longer duration. So other 
developers out there. So, you know, we picked three. We picked uh, seven assets from uh, uh, three of our six developers, and that's how we identified and sourced our first identified deals. We'd love to do another series. Uh, we're committed to get the capital in the fund, the first fund, by the end of this year. So the investors that get in this year into our fund get the full benefit of the 15% basis step up for a seven-year holding period prior to December 31, 2026. We'd love to do a series two and a series three in 2020 and 2021, um, but then we're kind of done because uh, you, you know we're not really focused on doing anything beyond 2021 in this space because you at least want to get the benefit of the 10% basis step up for the five-year hold. So for uh, real estate developers who are listening in and would uh, and are trying to seek some of this capital, there there are a number of us that are in the market consistently looking at providing assets. Three and a half billion to identify the six hundred million or so that were that are in the uh, in the first series, if you will. So uh, you know, it's, it seems like every day a new fund is raising its hand and popping its head above the surface. I can tell you that people have looked at this and considered doing this from a blind pool perspective. Our takeaway from the market is it's very difficult to motivate. Uh, investors to invest in a in a blind pool. So better to have an identified asset. So if you're an individual developer that's got an asset under control, um, then there are you know there are plenty of people out there. Um, you just can Google them now. There's there are, I don't know how many hundreds of funds or operators are out there now. They're they're scouring the market looking for product. We as I said we're focused on identifying assets where the price is locked. And was locked prior to the legislation coming through. I do worry, as I think about 2020 and 2021, that some of the best pieces of land and the best opportunity zones are going to start to get bid up and squeeze out the economics. Although, frankly, as I said earlier, we would never see those opportunities from our developers in the first instance because they're they're underwriting based on their own criteria and generating their own uh, idyllic uh, risk-adjusted return. And, and again, they're indifferent as to whether or not it's in a QOZ or, uh, or not. Right. Yeah. You mentioned the end of 2021 as being an important date. Do you suppose that middle or beginning of 2023 may be important? Also, I've just been kind of thinking about this myself. I actually haven't brought this up with anybody, but <clears throat> considering that the funds have a, what is it, a 30 or 31 month um, safe harbor working capital, you know, that, that takes you out until, you know, about 2023 or so, where you actually have to start deploying that capital. Do, do you see that as being an important date as well? I, I don't. Um, and the reason is there's no, there, you know, you, you've whittled away some of the benefits associated with the legislation if you wait past 2021. The time, to, the time to act is right now. The time to get into a fund is right now so you get the full advantage of the 15% basis step up. Because in order to get the 15% basis step up, you have to have held your interest in the fund for seven years prior to the end of 2026. If I push out to 2021, the maximum holding period I'm going to have is five years, which gets me to 10% basis step up. If I wait till 2023, then uh, the only thing I'm getting is a three-year Absolutely. Deferral. Yeah, I'm, I'm, and I'm with you there. But I'm speaking about, you know, from an investor level, get your money into the fund by the end of 2021. At least you get the 10% step up. 
But then the fund has an additional 30 months, or was it 31 months? I can't remember now to deploy the capital. So that kind of takes us to 2023. That's what I was talking about. At the fund level, is there some, might there be some pressure on market prices in 2023 as the funds are looking to deploy the capital? Is that anything you've, you've thought of? Yeah, I got to tell you, the answer is no. And you're going to see the pressure long before that because, for instance, if we take all of our capital in today, uh, I have to demonstrate within six months of formation of the fund and every year thereafter that I can pass the 90% test, which means that 90% of the equity is invested in qualified opportunities owned business property. If I'm sitting on cash, which inevitably I will be, to fund future development, I have to write my deployment plan today. I have to know today where I'm going to deploy that capital over the next 31 months in order to take advantage of the working capital safe harbor rule that allows me to really effectively treat that cash as qualified opportunities on business property. So you'd be really hard pressed to raise capital at the end of 2021 and then start to figure out where it's going to go. When you're sitting on the cash in order to comply with the 90%, you have to know then, as soon as you raise the cash, where that cash is going. Now, there's some flexibility in terms of how you address the written uh, deployment plan, but you can't sit there on, you can't sit on cash and then wait 30 months to figure out where it's going to go. Otherwise, you'll blow up under the 90% test. Does that make sense? Fair enough. Yes, that does make sense. Thanks for, thanks for clarifying that. Mm -hmm. What would you say to someone who asks you, an investor, who asks you, why should I invest in low-income real estate, opportunity zone real estate? Beyond the tax incentive right now, what's the business case for, for your investments? Well, listen, it's the, you know, it's the same reason I invested. I, I, I think that there are, uh, and I'll put it to you this way, there are plenty, there are plenty of quote-unquote low-income communities that did not need tax legislation to stimulate economic activity and development activity. Perfect example is we've identified assets in the forward pipeline of our development partners that they were already pursuing independent of the legislation. They were pursuing it on an economic basis, independent of the legislation. So why should you invest in real estate in an opportunity zone? You would do it for the same reasons you would invest in any other development real estate fund, which is the economics are compelling. What I think is interesting is, uh, is I look at and a development that's a development fund or a development opportunity that is more merchant building merchant built as opposed to one that's going to be held for duration. Um, because you know if you look at it, say you know we think we can generate over a ten year holding period an eight to ten percent internal rate of return. Well, that eight to ten percent return internal rate of return doesn't sound particularly exciting. Because normally, if I invest in a development fund, I would expect, you know, 14, 15, 16% internal rate of return, but my horizon's a lot shorter. So in this instance, you know you've got to hold it for a 10-year period, at least a 10-year period. You could hold it all the way through 2047, but you got to hold it for at least a 10-year period. And if I look at it from a multiple perspective, if I own a piece of <clears throat> real estate <clears throat> and I built a 300-unit apartment building, two years to build, build a building, it takes me 18 months to stabilize it, and then I sell it over a four-year period. If I generate a 15% internal rate of return, that's the equivalent of about a 1.8 multiple on my equity. But in the instance of the qualified opportunity zone, you know you've got to hold it for 10 years. So the bad news is now you're holding a stabilized asset for five or six years. So you're diluting your internal rate of return because it's a stabilized asset. 
But if you generate a 9% turnover rate of return over 10 years, that's almost two and a half multiples. So even though your IRR, your absolute turnover rate of return is going down, your multiple is going up. And yet that's really what you want. You want that multiple to go up so you can take advantage of that 100% fair market value basis step up after 10 years. But first and foremost, you should invest in a real estate in the opportunity zone where you like the economic profile of the transaction. And if you don't like the economics, forget about the taxes. The, the tax benefits are not worth the, uh, the, the struggle of investing in something that's not going to generate a fair risk-adjusted return independent of the tax benefits. And then if the value of the property doesn't appreciate enough, the tax benefit that kind of nullifies the tax benefit anyway. Yeah. So definitely make sure it makes sense from a from a business investing standpoint before before you even consider the tax benefit. Absolutely. 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 And you know what? Frankly, people pay a lot of lip service to that. I've I've been on a number. I don't know how many panel discussions I've been on regarding opportunity zones over the last six months, more than I can count. And every, it seems like every sponsor is is singing from the same song sheet. Say, hey, we focus on the economics. We focus on the economics. The tax benefits are a nice a nice addition. Uh, I can tell you that's not going to be the case. I, you know, I, I don't know how many hundreds of emails I get every day, but I can tell you I probably get a hundred direct solicitations from the brokerage community on any given day, just because I've been in this business for for thirty years, as as you admitted in, in front of front end of this discussion. And it seems like over the last six months, the tagline is "land in an opportunity zone." So I can tell you anecdotally, I'm already starting to see pressure build with respect to land appreciation in the in the best opportunity zones available. And if you're a real estate transaction broker, you know, you're out there mining for opportunities and, and identifying, calling on landowners that have land and opportunity zones to try and uh, push up that price and, and, and you know, squeeze out the, the, the economic benefit of, uh, of the asset and trying to appeal to the, uh, to the tax benefit. So it's, it's going to be tricky to watch over the next uh, over the next couple of years. So that's why hey, we'd love to have a series two and a series three. I, I don't frankly know if the market's going to hold up in the better qualified opportunity zones to support development going forward. We're just as comfortable just doing the one fun and on in the day if uh, if that should come to pass. Right, kind of have to wait and see at this point, I guess. Yeah. Uh, Kevin, you've you've been you've had your finger on on the pulse of the opportunity zone space for for over a year now, and you've spoken on numerous panels. In your time speaking to different people, what, what have you found to be the biggest points of confusion or areas of misconception for investors when it comes to opportunity zone investing? Uh, you know, a couple of things. Uh, the first is um, this whole construct of low investment communities and, and, and how that's defined. The, the mindset is, hey, we're, you know, we're building in really lousy areas. And the, the fact of the matter is there are 8,700 and change qualified opportunity zones. And e each governor had the opportunity, and I'm thinking about the bigger states, had the opportunity to select up to 25% of the census tract that qualify. So there are, as I indicated earlier, and I would submit to you, there are a number of communities that did not need tax legislation to drive economic activity and development activity. Again, the perfect case in point is we're picking and identifying assets that were being pursued by our joint venture partners independent of the legislation. So the misconception really is that you're you're developing in lousy areas. Well, it's just not the case. I mean, half of Austin, all of downtown Portland, 
you know, in our community, uh, you know, Culver City, big, big areas in Culver City, uh, you know, a big chunks of Brooklyn. There are 57 districts in Manhattan. The governors had the choice of, of picking 25 percent uh, of the uh, of those census tracts that qualified. They also had the ability to identify a five percent of the census tracts that happened to be adjacent to a qualified opportunity zone or a census tract that otherwise qualified. That's how Long Island City in uh, in New York became a qualified opportunity zone. I think Governor Cuomo was thinking strategically uh, about identifying Long Island City at the same time they're negotiating with Amazon to move their headquarters there. I mean, just in retrospect, it's unbelievable to think about how un- how incredibly transformative it would have been for Long Island City to have Amazon plopped in the middle of a qualified opportunity zone. I just I look back in amazement at how New York blew that uh, blew that transaction. It would have been it would have been unbelievable. So, you know, the misconception is uh, among investors is that uh, you're just not building in desirable parts of town. It's, it's just flat out wrong. The other uh, misconception is, boy, this is really complex legislation. It's really tough to get your arms around. And it really isn't. It's very, very straightforward. You, you sell any asset, you generate a capital gain, you invest that capital gain with 180 days. You can invest a whole amount, but the tax benefits are really only attached to the capital gain. You keep an investor for five years, you get a 10% base step up. You keep an investor for seven, you get another 5% base step up. You keep it in there for 10 years, you get 100% fair market value basis step up. It's just, it's an incredible combination of, of tax benefits that's really intended to free up, if you will, the, I don't know, whatever number, you know, you hear numbers all the time, it's the $6 trillion worth of capital gains that are embedded and trapped on the balance sheets of, uh, of Americans to stimulate a response to liquidate those assets, trigger the capital gain, and redirect that capital into these low-income communities. And regardless of whether or not you're developing in the inner city or you're developing on the, you know, in the path of growth, it doesn't really matter. Either way, it's going to have a, a very stimulative effect in those communities. You're bringing jobs into those communities. You're bringing development into those communities. It's transformative. So uh, uh, it's not, and it's not that complicated. And if you've got the right sponsor, that actually knows how to raise capital, knows how to raise capital in the retail market, because this is a retail product, has got the infrastructure to report over an extended period of time and the discipline to exit at the appropriate time, you're going to have a very, you're going to have a very good experience. It's not that complicated. It's really, it gets more complicated from the sponsor's perspective because we've got to wrap a fairly rigorous compliance protocol around the legislation. But, you know, in our instance, we use Baker McKenzie as our tax and securities counsel, the largest law firm in the world. We use Nova Gratic as our auditor and our, and our, um, our tax preparer. Uh, the Nova Gratic and company firm has uh, got a long, big footprint in tax-driven legislation. In fact, if you want to pick up uh, some educational material along the way, you would jump on their website, which is Novo.com. They've got a lot of stuff on their portal. That, uh, that addresses opportunity zones. So it's not, it's not as complicated and scary as people make it out to be. It's, it's actually relatively straightforward. And I will tell you this, after having spent time in Washington, both in our capacity at Griffin Capital or, you know, I'm on the, I'm on the board of the Institute for you know, Portfolio Alternatives, we and Baker and Novogratic and the National Association of Real Estate Investment Trust and the Real Estate Roundtable have all spent time in Washington advocating and educating our legislators on what, how this could work in the real world. I mean, it's nice to have this legislation, but when you're talking to Treasury and the Internal Revenue Service, they need real-time input from sponsors such as ourselves 
to educate them and get them to understand what it is we need to make this work in the context of fun to generate the kind of outcome they're looking to generate. And I will tell you, unlike other issues that I've spent the last decade advocating on the Hill, the reception has been unbelievably positive and they've been very receptive. And as a result, the first round of regs that came out in October, the second set that came out in April, are for the most part very fun and investor friendly because ultimately they really want this legislation to work. They really want to direct these capital dollars into the communities that need economic stimulus. Uh, and, uh, and so they're doing what they can to accommodate what it is we need from a fund management perspective and a development perspective. And, and that whole working capital safe harbor is a great example. I mean, when the legislation came out, we're looking at it and say, well, it's a development transaction. I'm sitting on cash and I've got to have 90% invested in qualified opportunities on business property. Does cash qualify? And ultimately, in October, they came out and said, okay, we hear you. We understand. I'll tell you what, as long as you give us a written deployment plan that shows how you're going to utilize that capital over the next 31 months, we will deem that the working capital safe harbor and give you a free pass with respect to that cash relative to the 90% test. It just, it's just emblematic of how cooperative they're being, they, the Treasury Department of Internal Revenue Service, to get something on the books that allows this phenomenal piece of legislation to actually work and operate in the world, real world environment. Yeah, I agree. I think the Treasury Department, the IRS has done a very good job of interpreting the statute favorably for taxpayers and, and for investors. Uh, and thanks in no small part to people like you and and folks at Baker McKenzie and Novogratik who have testified at the IRS hearings uh, along the way as well. Um, so that, that Novogratik Opportunity Zone Center, I've I've used it myself. I, it, it helped get me up to speed on Opportunity Zones when I was first learning about the program last year. Uh, that's at novoco.com. And I'll be sure to link to that in the show notes for this episode as well. Kevin, what should investors look for in an Opportunity Zone fund? If, they, if uh, I'm an individual investor and I'm looking to you know, do, um, roll over some capital gains into an Opportunity Zone fund, what, what should I look for exactly? And, and what should I avoid? Yeah, well, we kind of we kind of touched on this uh, uh, a second ago. You know, if you're trying to analyze an opportunity zone fund, first of all, you know, pick a product that you like, pick an asset class that you like, and I've articulated the reasons why we are favorably disposed and constructive on uh, on multifamily. And then ultimately, it's you're making a long term bet, if you will, on the sponsor. You're making a long term bet on the sponsor's ability to raise the capital put the compliance protocol in place and execute. So who is the sponsor? What kind of track record do they have? What have they been doing the last couple of decades? You know, how many assets do they actually manage? Who are their development partners if they're not a developer in and of themselves? What do those people do? What kind of track record do they have? That's all part of the fundamental due diligence. But beyond that, you know, does that sponsor have a track record and experience raising retail capital? And I can tell you that is a that is a specialty unto itself. I and mean, we've raised over $13 billion of retail capital since January of 2012. And with that, we have a very robust infrastructure and advisory services infrastructure. So when, when those investors have questions, there's somebody they can call. And are they going to be around for the next decade or, or more? I mean, uh, you know, you've got you've to attach yourself to the financial advisors and the, their investors and their clients for an extended period of time. So. I get a little nervous, I got to tell you, when I see all these funds popping up all over the place and they're 
our sponsors that are coming out of the woodwork for want of a better term that, Hey, this is their whole focus. They just started the new firm around this concept. They may or may not have experience. They may be a developer with a lot of development experience, but they may not have experience raising and deploying, you know, retail equity capital. They may not have an infrastructure around servicing that capital for an extended period of time. You know, they may come out into the market with a single asset fund, you know, all those things will make me a little bit nervous. I mean, it could be a great single asset. It's not a criticism to those that have single asset funds, but you really got to realize that ground up development, whether or not it's multifamily office, industrial or retail is the heaviest lift from a risk return perspective in the real estate business. So not only do you have to have a great development partner, um, but you got to have a great asset. And I get a little nervous when I look at single asset funds. I'd rather have a fund that's got six, seven, eight assets so I can spread some of that risk across a diversified portfolio of, uh, of properties. So, you know, I, I would tend to avoid, uh, and again, it's not a criticism. I'm sure there are great firms that have come out and decided they want to pursue this, but the things that make me a little nervous are some of these single asset funds, some of these uh, sponsors that come out with no real experience having raised retail capital, how to service that capital over an extended period of time. Those are the things that, as an investor, I'd want to get a clear view in terms of who it is sponsoring this fund and make sure that you're effectively getting in bed with the right person or the right firm. All good advice, all very sound advice for, for anyone looking to roll over capital gains into opportunity zones. So you brought this up previously that these funds, these investments require a hold of at least 10 years. And having an exit strategy after that 10-year period is crucial to being able to take full advantage of the OZ tax benefit. What is your exit strategy or, or what should be most funds exit strategy? What do you like to see? Yeah, so you know, there's some great fund sponsors out there that are doing all things to all people. Well, they'll buy or develop or substantially renovate, you know, retail or office or industrial and multifamily. They'll do it all or hospitality. You know, there, there are a lot of good firms out there. But if you start mixing asset classes in the same fund, your exit strategy is really limited to selling those assets back one off. We are focused on strictly ground up multifamily development. And to the extent that you stay true to a single asset class, that is your only opportunity to generate a portfolio premium, as opposed to breaking it apart and selling the assets individually. So, you know, if I look forward 10 years and I've got seven assets, I've got a billion dollars worth of property, I've developed them sequentially, I've delivered my asset in 2025 or 2026, I've got a fully stabilized portfolio of assets by 2025 or 2026. At that point, I could entertain, the, you know, we started out as a partnership, which makes the most sense to me. In fact, they refer to our structure as a two-tier structure, which means you invest, the individual investor invests in the opportunity fund up top. It's an umbrella, really. And then the opportunity fund drops the equity into a series of joint venture development partnerships. So the fund is really comprised of a bunch of limited partnership interests across the seven different seven different assets. And as a result, I have one subscription document. I have one K1. It makes the administration of moving capital around between the funds much easier to uh, much easier and much more elegant from a structural perspective. But I'm only focused on a single asset class. So once that portfolio stabilizes, I always have the option of doing a, a tax deferred conversion into a real estate investment trust. And that gives you, a, you know, three more arrows in your quiver, if you will. You could List the portfolio if you have enough size and scale, although if it's only a billion dollars, it's probably too small to list. 
you could engage in a tax-deferred 721 exchange, which basically is a uh, ability for you as a as a REIT to swap your REIT stock for the operating partnership units of a publicly traded multifamily REIT. So I could go to you know Avalon Bay or any of the other big multi-billion, $25, 26000000000 billion REITs and say, hey, here's seven assets. They're all stabilized. They're all core. You know, they fit into your portfolio. It's a billion dollars for the property. It helps you move your needle a little bit. Very tough for a $25 billion REIT to build assets one-off that are 50 or $60 million and actually have it be impactful to their shareholders. And I could do a tax-free conversion into an OP unit and then give the individual investors as I distribute partnership units the ability to figure out when for themselves they want to actually monetize by converting their OP units to stock and then ultimately selling. Or you file a plan of liquidation, you sell the whole portfolio in total. If you can extract a premium from the market that way, or you break up the portfolio and sell the assets individually. So you've got a lot more latitude and flexibility. And I can tell you, if we're in the fund at the end of 2019, the first day that you can contemplate monetizing that fund would be January 1st, 2030, right? In your holding period. So one of the things that keeps me up at night thinking about this is, well, if everybody's got the same attitude and if everybody wants to get in a fund by 2019, is everybody going to be wanting to get out in 2030? Is everybody, do, I have to, do I have to worry about the proverbial rat moving through the snake and a, and a supply to a lot of assets that's going to drag down pricing? I mean, it's one of the things you've got to be contemplative about and figure out how you want to manage around it. Well, I tell you, if I'm sitting on a core portfolio of seven multifamily assets that are all stable, I can continue to manage that portfolio for another year or two and wait for that supply wave to work itself out and ultimately monetize. Really, the best time to monetize is when the publicly traded multifamily market is trading at a premium to net asset value. I can affect a greater premium by uh, by transacting in a 721 exchange framework or selling the assets in portfolio or individually. That's the best time to sell if you can kind of time that time that market, if you will. But I have the ability to be patient and time that market to the extent that I've got a robust portfolio of assets that I can continue to uh, to manage for duration. And while I'm waiting for the market to present itself, if you will, as those assets continue to appreciate, I'm continuing to have them appreciate tax-free because I get the 100% fair market value basis step up when I actually transact and sell the asset or sell the fund. Well, that makes perfect sense. And thank you for the level of detail there with your exit strategy. That was, that was very helpful. And, you know, that affords you the opportunity to kind of wait out any changes in the market, any dips that the market may, may incur. If everybody's rushing to the exit at the same time, maybe you go ahead and hold on to your properties until the mid 2030s or maybe even 2040, who knows? Um, yeah. Well, theoretically you could hold on to until the end of 2047, because that is on which the QOZ designation starts to lapse. That's right. Well, and but then that may lead to another rush to the exits and and uh, a downturn in the market. I is is yeah, what I may I, suspect. I frankly, in, in a retail environment, you wouldn't want to go to the market and say, "By the way, we're going to hold on to these assets for 20, 28 years." Right. So, if really, the intention is to liquidate as soon after the ten-year holding period as you can, provided the market is will be supportive. Right. Absolutely. Well, Kevin, we're getting toward the end of our conversation today, but uh, this is a question I pose to a lot of my guests on the show, and I'm going to pose it to you now. Over the course of your career, what has been your favorite or most memorable 
investment that you've ever made? Is there anything that stands out? Oh, so many. <laughs> you know what I'll tell you? You, uh, you, you indicated before we started this about the family in, in El Segundo, which is where we're headquartered. I think probably one of the one of the one of the most fun things that I've done and and. In my career is actually building our headquarters uh, office building in uh, El Segundo. It's it's very uh, edgy, creative office space, and, and I, you know, we used to be over in a high-rise building, and there was nothing special about being in a classic high-rise on Rosecrans. But building this really, hip, I think, you know, and I say that as a 61-year-old guy, and hip is not really the biggest part of my vocabulary, but uh, it's amazing. It's amazing to me when we moved here, and you know, when you move your employees into a really just a cool environment, how impactful it is, positively impactful it is on the, the psychology and the mentality of your uh, of your employees and how much they really like coming to work here. Independent of the work the work themselves, just the environment that we've created here is uh, is pretty special. So I, I invite you next time you're out visiting your family to stop by and say hello. Yeah, I may have to do that. I, I think I'll be out there later this summer. So I'll have to I'll have to ring you up if uh, if that's the case. That's very cool. Uh, thanks for sharing that story. Um, and thank you for joining us today. But but before we go, can you tell us tell tell our listeners where they can go to learn more about you and Griffin Capital? Yeah, our website, www.griffincapital.com. G-R-I-F-F-I-N. And by the way, a, a Griffin is uh, is the legendary protector of the king's wealth more it's got the head and the forebody and the vision of an eagle and the strength and stability and hindquarters of a lion that's what a griffin is so a very apt mascot for for your firm obviously very good well for our listeners out there today i'll have show notes for this episode on the opportunity zones database website i'll have links to griffin capital and to the novogradic opportunity zone center that we previously mentioned and to all of the other resources that Kevin and I discussed on today's show. You can find those show notes at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. Kevin, again, thanks for joining us. I really appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, John. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by the Opportunity Database. Visit OpportunityDB.com to learn more about Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Zone Fund Investing. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and read more about today's guest in the show notes by visiting OpportunityDB.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.